Good morning. Uh, this morning, the scripture reading will be from Ezra, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and go through chapter 4 and verse 5. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and with the Levites and the sons of Asaph, with cymbals and praised the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praying and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers of the house of old men had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice with the foundation of this temple, was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people would not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the descendants of the captivity were building the temple for the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, excuse me, and the heads of the fathers' houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Sahardon, king of the Assyrian, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers of the houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for your... For our God, but we will build to the Lord, God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Before we get started with our study today, there is one other announcement that um, I failed to get to John before, uh, before he did announcements today, and that is that we do have another sister in Christ who was baptized Friday night by her father, and that is Hannah Gardner. And so we, we celebrate with Hannah's decision, and we're, we are excited to, to have her as a, an addition to the church family as well. So please be sure to... Uh, um, uh, speak to Hannah at the close of the service, but we are so excited for you, Hannah, and, 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 and so excited to share that news with you. Um, the, we're continuing our study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we come to this point in the, the storyline where they make another significant milestone project, and that is the completion of the foundation of the temple. You know, when it, when it comes to any construction project, the first thing you have to get right is its foundation. Because foundations, they distribute the weight of the structure across the ground strata. And therefore, they are the, the basis on which a structure stands or is supported. The foundation, thus, determines the success of the structure. So I'm reminded of the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, and I shared this in an article not too long ago because I wasn't anticipating this particular sermon at the time. But the Burj Khalifa in Dubai stands at 2,722 feet tall. That's over half a mile in height. It has 160 floors. 
And to help, help you wrap your mind around the size of this building, because this picture does not do it justice, this building is twice as tall as the Empire State Building. That is an incredibly, incredibly tall building. How, how is it possible for a building that's half a mile tall to not fall over? It has everything to do with its foundation. Before upward construction began on this building, workers spent a year, a year, digging and pouring its foundation. The foundation has 58,900 cubic yards of concrete, weighs more than 110,000 tons, and consists of 192 piles buried more than 160 feet deep. The Burj Khalifa is able to stand because of its foundation. Now let's compare that to another famous building, the Tower of Pisa. No one ever intended for the Tower of Pisa to lean. Construction on this tower began in A.D. 1172. A mere five years later, when they added the second floor, one side, to be, begin to, one side began to sink. Five years after it started construction, it already started to lean. The reason it leans is because the original foundation was only 10 feet deep. That shallow foundation was insufficient to hold the weight of the 183-foot marble structure that we know as the Tower of Pisa. And it's built on soft soil. So over, years, over the years, corrective reconstruction efforts on the ground around the tower has been taken up. In 2008, they finally, finally reached the point that they can claim that the tower will not topple over. And, of course, now the Tower of Pisa, the leaning Tower of Pisa, is one of the most famous structures in the world. But it was never meant to lean. You know, the difference between the Burj Khalifa and the Tower of Pisa has everything to do with their foundations. And the, and, and the point I, I want you to grasp from these two structures is that foundations matter. And maybe that's why when we arrive here in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, there's so much emphasis placed on the milestone of a foundation being built. Look again at verses 10 and 11 of Ezra chapter 3. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In other words, the completion of the foundation of the temple, not the temple itself, just its foundation, just this one benchmark, just this one milestone was enough of a big deal for an outpouring of praise to God. 
And I think the reason this was such a big deal is because the rebuilding of the temple's foundation was ultimately a metaphor of an even greater foundation project going on in Israel at this time. And I'm referring to the foundation of their covenant relationship with Yahweh. These people had spent the past 70 years in exile, in captivity, because they had forgotten their foundation. Because they had distanced themselves from God. And now they've been given the opportunity, opportunity to return. And in returning, they've wanted to make sure they lay the right foundation from the start. But what, what is the foundation they laid, spiritually speaking? The foundation for the exiles was the Word of God. And now let me explain what I mean by this. If you journey through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember those books were one book originally. When you journey through these texts, you'll see a lot of emphasis placed on the law, on Moses, on what we would know as Torah, or what we would know as the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let me show you how this plays out. Last week, we focused on the returnees' construction of the altar of burnt offering. And if you look back in verse 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 3, here's what is said at the construction of that altar. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Notice that emphasis on where they got their uh, information on how to build. The emphasis when it came to rebuilding this altar is doing it according to God's, directi God's directives that were given through Moses. And once the altar was rebuilt, look at what they started to do. In verse 4 and 5 of Ezra chapter 3, And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. As it is written, though the law of Moses is not specifically mentioned in this verse, the phrase, as it is written, is obviously a callback to verse 2 that we looked at a moment ago, where it's referring to what is written in the law of Moses. So once again, the emphasis is on God's directives given through the law of Moses. And if we were to jump into the future, to Ezra chapter 6, when the temple itself is finally complete, look at what is said, Ezra chapter 6, verse 16 and 18, through 18. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of their returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Once again, when, the, when a project was completed, the focus was on God's directives given through Moses. 
Then Ezra will arrive on the scene after the temple's completion. And he'll arrive with a very specific mission. It's revealed to us in Ezra chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, where we're told that on the first day of the first month, he, referring to Ezra, began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach the statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra's sole objective when he came to Jerusalem was to know and to obey and to teach God's word. You see, all throughout the book of Ezra and all throughout the book of Nehemiah, the emphasis is on doing things the way God said to do them in his word. In fact, journey through these two books and you'll see multiple references to and designations of or for God's word. It's referred to as the law of Moses, as we've already seen, the book of Moses, as we've already seen, the law of the Lord, the law of the God of heaven, the law of Ezra's God, the book of the law of Moses, the book of the law, the law of God, the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, the book of the law of God, the book of the law of the Lord, God's law that was given by Moses, or simply the law. That's 13 different designations among 24 different verses throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. And the abundance of such references indicates that the returnee's understanding, as one commentator said, only the law of Moses can recalibrate and anchor the community's actions on the hills of exile. The point is that everyone who returned from captivity came with the attitude that we're not going to do anything that isn't written in God's Word. That was their foundation for every building project they engaged in. And this emphasis on God's Word as a foundation should not come as a surprise to you and I. Do you remember the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27? Our typical takeaway from that parable is that the wise builder's house stood firm because he chose the, route, the, the correct foundation and the foolish builder's house was destroyed because he chose the incorrect foundation. But pay careful attention to the comparison that Jesus makes with this parable on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus indicated that the wise builder represents everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. And Jesus went on to indicate that the foolish builder represents everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. The Sermon on the Mount was what Jesus had just presented in the previous verses spanning from chapter 5 through chapter 7 of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' summation of Christian living. And he concluded the greatest sermon ever preached by saying your spiritual success boils down to one thing, whether or not you obey his word. You see, foundations matter. And the only foundation that matters is the word of God. Whatever construction is going on in your life at this phase, what matters is whether or not you're building it with the Word of God as its foundation. Its success will be contingent on that 
from a spiritual perspective. And here's the problem we have. Far too many of us are choosing something else as our foundation. For some of us, we're choosing money as our foundation. We're building our lives around what is going to give us the greatest financial success, not around what God's Word says. There are others of us who are building on a foundation of our children. And our lives center around what our kids are doing and how our kids can be most successful. It's about their achievements academically, athletically, or anything else. And we're building our life on what they're doing right now, and it's not God as the foundation, it's our kids. I'm not trying to say kids aren't important. All I'm trying to say is they're not the foundation. Some of us are even trying to build our lives with our freedom as our foundation. Our constitutional rights are the most important thing, and everything else comes in secondary. And we try to build our lives with with the freedom that, that our country has given us as the basis of our lives. And that's a great thing. But it's not the foundation. God's Word is the only sustainable foundation. And that's the point of the parable of the wise and foolish builders. The wise builder isn't the guy who went, and, he's the guy that went and found a strong foundation. But when he found that foundation, he found it in doing what the Lord had said, not something else. All other foundations are going to cause their structures to top when the storms of life approach. We need to understand what the people in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah understood, that there's only one right foundation. There's only one firm foundation. And that's the Word of God. Build on nothing else. And if you do that, there are going to be some results from it. If you're building on the right foundation, if you're building on the firm foundation, it's going to result in adoration. It's going to result in worship. We read already a couple of times verses 10 and 11 of Ezra chapter 3, and if you'll go back and look at that, two verses, you'll see that we, we're told in verse 10 that the foundation of the temple is laid. And then from that point on, all we're reading about is all of the activities that were engaged in worship that day. We're told about how the priests wore their garments. We're told about how the, the uh, people sang and shouted and praised God. We're even told in verse 12 about how some of them were brought to tears. From our vantage point, this is the first worship service post-exile. And it's interesting because this description in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, at the completion of the foundation of the temple, the description spends more time talking about worship than it does about the construction milestone. It's as if the completion of the foundation is a footnote. 
And the author just wants us to hear about worship. Because, here's the thing, when you've got the right foundation, it will be accompanied by the right worship. Without the right foundation, you'll find yourself worshiping the wrong things. When we think about worship, we tend to limit it to what we're doing this hour. We tend to think of worship, we associate it with coming to a building and engaging in some particular activities. But let's be honest, we worship a lot of things in this life, don't we? Some of us worship sports teams. Some of us, by the way we spend our money, spend our time, and give our attention, it's quite obvious that a particular sports team is the most important thing in our life. And we worship that. For others of us, there is a particular hobby, a particular self-interest that we engage in that consumes our time, our energy, our thought processes, I just love saying process ease. And we worship that activity or that hobby or whatever it is. There are certain people in our life who consume our life for good or for bad. And ultimately, when you look at your interest in that individual, you are worshiping that individual. We are quite capable of worshiping other people, other things than God. They just don't come in the form of a golden calf anymore. Here's what you need to know about worship. It was summarized well by one author. He said, when you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. In other words, he goes on to say, you become like what you worship. So consider for a moment what it is that you truly worship. Are you truly, solely, wholeheartedly worshiping only the God of heaven? Or is there someone or something in your life that is receiving your worship as well? Because it, if there is, it might just be revealing something about your foundation because the right foundation leads to the right worship. And I think that's why God is so critical of affection for anything other than himself. He warns us in James chapter 4 and verse 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with him. And that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, we're instructed to not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And Jesus would tell us in that Sermon on the Mount that we've already alluded to, he will tell us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will love the, the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And shortly after, or shortly before that, he pointed it out that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Scripture is filled 
with references to our affection. And that affection is placed in the right place. Firm foundations result in adoration. They result in you worshiping the right one. Is your foundation built on the Word of God so that the only affection you have, the only adoration you give, the only one you worship is the God of heaven? Or are you finding yourself adoring something else? Because it's that very thing that sent the Israelites into captivity in the first place. It's a thing called idolatry. If you're not built on the right foundation, that's where you'll find yourself. You know what the other thing firm foundations do? Is they lead to conviction. They lead to conviction. Look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 with me. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. So according to Ezra chapter 4 in the first few verses, some locals, they're identified as people of the land uh, in one verse, some locals, they want to participate. They want to help. They want to be a part of rebuilding the temple. They're offering their assistance. And their assistance is categorically rejected. Just outright rejected. And initially, you see that, and you're like, well, that's kind of rude. They're just wanting to help. Why not let them help? Well, let's consider some things. See, if you really pay attention to what's going on here, you'll discover that these are not people you want to help. First off, these people of the land, these locals, are identified as residents since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. In other words, they identified themselves as exiles, people who were carried away from Assyria to Samaria. These guys are in the region of the northern kingdom of Israel. They're from up in the northern parts above Jerusalem. But they were brought here from other territories of the Assyrian Empire. Remember, in 722 B.C., years decades, centuries before the events that we're reading now. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria. Its people were taken captive. And people in, in, in Assyria's practice at the time was, all right, we're going to repopulate this conquered land with people from all over the territories we've already conquered. So a bunch of non-Jewish people are sent into the northern kingdom, the area of Samaria. And with what few Israelites are remaining in that, er that territory, they begin to intermarry. And they produced an offspring, they produced descendants that would later become known as Samaritans. 
when you get to the New Testament, you start to see a great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it's born out of this circumstance, this intermarriage of Israelites and non-Israelites that occurred when Assyria repopulated the land. And the issue that the Jews always had with the Samaritans was that they were not pure blood. They were mixed blood. And since they weren't pure blood descendants of Abraham, they were not technically members of the covenant community of Israel. But that's not the only issue here. The other issue is that these locals claim to worship the same God as the Jews, but they also worshiped other little g gods. So if you go over to 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 33, you'll see that it tells us after Assyria repopulated Samaria with other conquered people, the new inhabitants of Samaria feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. In other words, these people of the land were not pure worshipers of Yahweh. They had come from all these other regions, and they would brought with them their own deities. And they didn't stop worshiping those deities just because they were now in a land that did worship Yahweh. They had a mixed religion. They were not monotheistic. They were not, as one author said, wholly and exclusively devoted to the Lord, as Mosaic law demands. They were, in fact, actively engaged in the sin of idolatry, which was the very sin that led the Israelites into exile in the first place. When you consider those two factors, that they are not pure-blood descendants of Abraham, and they are not purely monotheistic worshipers, It becomes apparent why the leaders of this first group of returning exiles made the decision not to let them cooperate in the rebuilding of the temple. Now think about it. It would have been advantageous to let them help build. More hands on deck would have resulted in a sped-up project. More funds in the coffers would have made the final structure grander. And cooperation with the people in the community would help grow their reputation, create useful context for the future, or even enlarge their numbers. But all of these benefits would come at the risk of maintaining their purity. Compromising with the community around them is what led to Israel's downfall in the first place. So Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders were convicted by their foundation in the Word of God to not compromise their purity for the sake of expediency. There's a lesson for us to learn here. A lesson about having convictions that will not be compromised. See, when you've got the right foundation, when you've got a firm foundation, it's going to lead to strong, deep, meaningful convictions. And the Israelites, the Jews who returned at this time, had that. They were convicted not to risk Compromise again. And think about 
God's Word and what it says about our relationship to the world and how it must be uncompromising. You can think about Romans chapter 12. Verse 2, where we're instructed to not be conformed to this world. You can think about James chapter 1 and verse 27, where we're instructed to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And you can think about Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, where we are expected to be blameless and innocent without blemish, so that we can shine as a light in this world. All of those verses speak to an uncompromising conviction. Do you have that? Are you convicted to not look like the world? Do you have a deep-seated belief that you must do anything and everything in your power to be in the world, but not of the world? Can the world distinguish you from itself? That's the call of Christianity. That's the call of being a follower, a worshiper of the one true God. It's an expectation. In this world, I'll be recognizable because I'll be distinct when I make His Word my foundation. Do you stand out or do you just fit in? One is a Christian call, the other is not. And here's the thing about these convictions. They're going to bring about the third and final aspect of a firm foundation. That is that firm foundations promote determination. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at Ezra chapter 4, you start in verse 5, you're going to see that we start encountering some opposition to the temple rebuilding process. But Ezra 4 is a little bit confusing because Ezra 4 is arranged topically, not chronologically. What I mean is that the events mentioned, particularly in verses 6 through 23 of Ezra chapter 4, are not consistent with the timeline that pauses at Ezra chapter 4 and verse 5 and resumes at verse 24. Notice in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 5, it concludes with a reference to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then if you skip down to verse 24 of Ezra chapter 4, it makes reference once again to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But in between these references, we read about the reign of Ahasuerus in verse 6 and Artaxerxes in verse 7. Now, Ahasuerus is another name for Xerxes, who succeeded Darius as king, and then Artaxerxes succeeded Xerxes as king. So we have this break in timeline here, where in verse 5 of Ezra chapter 4, we're still dealing with the foundation of the temple. We're still dealing with opposition that's going to happen as the temple's being rebuilt. And it's going to be, that opposition is going to occur in the days of King Cyrus and the days of King Darius. But then the author transitions and tells us about opposition that happens in the future after, these, after King Darius, in the days of King Xerxes and Artaxerxes. What happens here is the author, who is assumedly Ezra, kind of inserts a parenthetical passage. As he's re recollecting the opposition faced in the temple construction, it reminds him of all the opposition that the people of the land, that these locals, these Samaritans, have brought against them. Opposition that extended into the reigns of multiple kings. Opposition that lasted for nearly a century. 
opposition, not just to the temple being built, but as you'll see, I believe it's in verse 12 of Ezra chapter 4, opposition that came about when they were trying to rebuild the city, city walls, which came much later than the temple itself. And so what we have is Ezra taking a moment and saying, let me tell you about all the opposition we faced. Let me give you an overview of all the opposition. Because it wasn't just one time, it was consistent, it was persistent. And why does this matter? Because when you understand the longevity of the persecution they faced in Ezra chapter 4, it reminds you, when you're distinct because of your foundation, you're going to face persecution. Ezra 4 reveals the truthfulness of Jesus' own declaration. A declaration you can find in John chapter 15, verse 19, and John chapter 17, verse 14. A declaration that when you are not of the world, the world will hate you, just like it hated him. And as you face persecution, it's going to require determination on your part. Determination not to cave, not to give in, not to cower. Determination in this context means fortitude. It means endurance. It means grit. It means metal. It means perseverance. I'm referring to that ability to stand through the storm. And speaking of storms, we were just talking about a parable earlier. A parable from Matthew chapter 7, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. What's fascinating about that parable is that they're both facing the same storm. They are not facing two different storms. It's the storm. Think about it. Rain fell on both houses. Floods rose against both houses. Winds beat against both houses. It's not different types of storms. It's the same storm affecting both houses. And what that parable teaches us is if that you don't have the right foundation, then you won't endure. You won't overcome. You won't survive when the storms arise. But when your foundation is built on the unchanging, all-powerful Word of God, you can rest assured that no matter what you face, you will succeed in the end. Isn't that the message of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be determined to be obedient to my word for the entirety of your life. Now we'll give you the crown of life. You see, foundations matter. Foundations affect your convictions. Foundations affect your, uh, your worship. Foundations affect your ability to persevere. So I want to keep it real simple this morning. You're building something in your life, as we've talked about the past few weeks. There's something being constructed in your life. It could be as simple as constructing your identity. It could be as complex as constructing your legacy. It doesn't matter. Something's being built in your life. The question is, are you building the Burj Khalifa or are you building the Leaning Tower of Pisa? 
your foundation will tell you which one you're building. If you want to build something that will endure, something that will succeed, it's got to start with the Word of God. With a deep conviction to do what He has told us to do. When we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, when we look at the building projects in which they engaged, they succeeded. They succeeded because their foundation was God's Word as it was written. So this morning, we extend the invitation of the Lord that whatever you're working on, whatever's going on in your life, are you consulting His Word? Are you being guided by His Word? Are you planted in His Word for the answers? We'll help you find those answers if you can't find them yourself. We'll pray with you and encourage you if you need that. We'll study with you. Help you understand what you must do to have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll help you build. But we've all got to start the right foundation. This morning we invite you to come if you need that foundation now. As together we stand and sing.